Thank you, worship team, for that beautiful song, and thank you, Katie, for leading us, in, uh, leading us in prayer. I want to encourage you to turn to Acts 25 as we resume our study of this book. And in addition of Newsweek magazine, author and radio personality Garrison Keillor was asked to choose what uh, the top five favorite books were of his. Guess what he said was number one? The book of Acts. The book of Acts. When describing the book, he offered this description. The flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say that the apostle Paul was bravely and dangerously going onward. And I want us to resume our story as we pick it up in Acts 25, 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. The father to this Agrippa mentioned in verse 13 was Herod Agrippa I, appointed king over all Palestine, and was the same man who beheaded James. He's also the same man who had Peter put in prison. You might remember his untimely fate in Acts 12 after some people were worshiping him, calling him a god. This is what it says in Acts 12. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He had four children, one being Agrippa II. Uh, the emperor thought about putting Agrippa II in charge over his father's um, kingdom. But because Agrippa II was only 17, he thought better of it. So when he was 21, he was appointed governor of a kingdom that was smaller in size of his father, but include, included the Jewish temple at Jerusalem along with the treasury, and he also had the freedom to appoint differing high priests at the time. And he made frequent uh, priestly changes, and this caused him to be hated by the Jews. He presided also during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, Bernice was his sister, and apparently they had an incestuous relationship. She was previously married to her uncle when she was 13. And later, she had a relationship with Titus, the general who led the destruction of Jerusalem. She was a Jew, but like many Christians today, she was only a Jew by name um, and did not really follow the Jewish precepts like many Christians don't follow the Christian precepts. Verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Uh, king Agrippa II was a kind of Roman expert on Judaism and Bernice was, as I've already said, a lapsed Jewess. So they were really the best authorities around that Festus could ask uh, to provide some backdrop to present this case to Caesar. Verse 15, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, being Paul. 
asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser's face uh, and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. Now, researchers have given clear evidence to something that is called narrative bias. The idea is that we reframe past events in explanations that make sense to us. We prefer reasons that we can understand rather than an unknown cause. In addition, since all of us humans are self-interested, we typically recast details of a past event to tilt the opinion of the listener in our favor. It's kind of the age-old retelling of the fish story of someone who maybe caught a little sunfish and years later it expounds to like a three-pound bass, right? This is what takes place with Festus. According to Festus, the Jews wanted Paul handed over without a fair trial. And Festus was standing up, you know, with, uh, for, for truth and righteousness by refusing such a request. In fact, the Jews wanted to kill Paul and Festus even asked Paul if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem in verse nine. Festus was trying to do the Jews a favor by winning them over by offering up Paul to them but he retells the story as if he was all for justice. And actually, Festus admits uh, to his appeal to Paul in verses 18 and 20, where it says this, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him upon their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. Let's not skip the obvious here, that this is another example of a government official, in this case, a Roman official, who testifies that there is no evidence to support these charges against Paul. Festus confesses that he is at a loss for how to address the crux of the matter. And what does he say the crux of the matter is? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is here we read again of a political person not doing the right thing, but trying to win points with their constituents. The right thing would have been to let Paul go because that is what justice required. However, verse 9 clearly states that Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he extends Paul's imprisonment and seeks to send him to Jerusalem. And it's interesting that Festus doesn't even address the original most egregious false charge that was given against Paul, which was the uh, temple desecration, the, uh, related to trying to let a Gentile in to a section that was forbid uh, by, to uh, have Gentiles in. It's almost as if he could smell out the falsity of this charge. And so here is a, is a Roman pagan leader more adept at putting his finger on the real issue, which was not this desecration of the temple, It was the resurrection of Christ. 
And listen, the resurrection of Christ is always the issue. And it continues to be the issue today for every person. You know, the fear that is worldwide with COVID-19 exposes the fragility of our global economy and our supply chains. The major media outlets are blaring the headlines that you know, more than 5 million cases of the virus are around the world. Over 300,000 deaths. U.S. jobless rates are now rivaling the Great Depression. A mere three months ago, our economy was bursting with growth and stocks were soaring. But now, our planet does not seem fine. The director of a hospital in Spain, traumatized by the images of his emergency care unit, confessed, that, and, I'm, and I'm quoting this, we have sinned from too much confidence. We have sinned from too much confidence. And I might add, confidence in the wrong things. Our bodies and even life itself are deeply vulnerable, not only to death, but to what the writer of Hebrews called the fear of death. And it makes us subject to misplaced self-assurance. John Stott once called the resurrection up to the minute relevant. The resurrection somehow resonates with our human condition. It speaks to our needs as I reckon no other event of antiquity does or even could. Festus was investigating questions concerning the resurrection to address legal charges, but he failed to see his own need and how the resurrection gives hope that no other entity, no other person on earth can do except Jesus Christ. See, resurrection is more than a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Jesus Christ is himself the presence of God. And he comes to people to give them life after death, a sure hope in the midst of all of these issues that we are facing today. Verse 21, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Notice the wording of Paul's request. He delivered to be, or, uh, he desired to be kept in custody. Kept in custody. It wasn't just to go to Rome, but I need you to guard me during this time. He knew that if he was given up to the Jews, it meant death. Again, what an indictment here, if you think about this. That the followers of Christ are sometimes safer with an unbelieving world, uh, government officials, than with religious leaders <laughs> who are jealous, who are threatened. I think we've all had our fill of religious leaders who are territorial, who are jealous. I knew of a church that was opening up their doors for a new church to meet while they were out of that building. Uh, some of the leaders of the church with the facility 
fiercely objected to the new church that just during their meeting for a couple hours had put up a sign over theirs. And they gave the reason that they were so upset was because this new church didn't ask when in reality, it was petty jealousy, protecting their territory. And unfortunately, that's what many religious establishments uh, do. And that has no room for us. If we are a, a movement of Christ, we, we approach our other brothers and sisters in Christ with, with open hands, without the petty jealousy, without the territorialism. In our story, Agrippa affirms that he would like to hear Paul give his own defense. And we pick it up in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Great pomp means ceremonial Elegance, splendor, pageantry that marked this entrance of Agrippa and Bernice. They would have been outfitted with you know, royal garb and they were escorted with military might. In the case of them, they had at least five leaders, one for each Roman cohort. And history tells us there were at least five different cohorts there. And a cohort had a thousand different soldiers in addition, there were important men from the region that joined in in this austere group. And such a display reminds us of the show that can go on inside, but it belies a dark reality. Uh, or I should say the show that goes on on the outside, and it belies a dark reality on the inside. And in the case of Agrippa and Bernice, their personal lives did not deserve to be celebrated, as I've already a given testimony to. Another reason for this depiction is to establish the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Luke 21, 12, when he told the disciples, you'll be brought before kings and rulers for not my name's sake. Here it's taking place. And more specifically, when the Lord said of Paul at his conversion in Acts 9, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here we see it taking place. Clearly the pageantry had more to do with uh, the opportunity of Agrippa and Bernice to posture themselves as important and powerful. This is in contrast to the Apostle Paul that when in Acts 14 ripped his clothes because the crowd was trying to venerate him. Paul was diligent to take every opportunity to put the attention on Christ. That, that he would decrease, that Christ would increase. Paul's tool was humility and dependence upon God. The politicians made the event about themselves. They yearned for respect and adoration to come their way. You know, public meetings that we have, they can bring in these tempting attractions. Can they not? I mean, let's be honest about this. I think some of us in the audience sense it. 
We feel it. And not to judge what's going on in the hearts of others, but it just seems to kind of emanate. You know, taking a, a humble approach in ministry, being sure to, to give God the glory should be a mark of all ministries. And I sure want it to be a mark of CCC. We've had many conversations in our staff about this because it's really a discipline to focus our ministry and not be tempted with something that we're not or don't want to be. Quality, in-depth community, the, the word of God unapologetically and clearly proclaimed, discipling our people in light of a biblical worldview. These are not necessarily consistent with our culture. And by culture, I mean our evangelical culture. And so there's an expectation, and this presents something before the church about are we going to do what we're called to do or are we going to be pulled in this other direction and say yes to this temptation? I mean, let's just talk turkey, you and me. We're not going to attract everybody. There are going to be a lot of people that just think, you know, this is a sad banana outfit, just too simple. And I want you to know I'm perfectly okay with that, all right? We will not attract everyone because they're not attracted to the goals that I just gave. Our building, our programs, our presentations are not made to help us get a greater evangelical market share. We exist to shape the message of the gospel and the word of God so that it is compelling and clear and transforms lives. You know, Paul could have packed it up long before Acts 25 to fade the heat, to live a life much easier, away from these fires of persecution. Instead, he disciplined his desires to say yes to whatever God was calling him to do. And our present society now has a myriad of choices at its fingertip, different than any other time in history. We have devices that are far more powerful in our hands. That was on the Apollo rockets that went to the moon. Think about it. We can buy anything we want, a myriad of choices in our fingertips. We can find out any information we want and we can satisfy most every fleshly desire with all of these choices right at our fingertips. And we can listen to whoever we want for, you know, spiritual lessons. And you know what? I'll call that good. I had church. But you know what I find happens in all of that? Our desires increase and so does our dissatisfaction. The evangelical world often can be found trying to compete on the marketplace with you know, sound, light, girth, momentum, excitement, and trying to add to these myriads of choices. And all the while, we're not being attentive to being disciplined, disciplining our passions. But our passions are, are running amok, begging for more. And I want to suggest it's what we do with the dissatisfaction in a marriage, in a job, in a country 
with our families and even church that often trips us up. Whatever our coping mechanism with our family and our marriage, with our job and with church, it's what we are teaching our children. So how are you teaching your children to deal with disappointment? Could it be that God is actually calling us to go deeper in making disciples, to discipline our souls in these times? It's not that there's sometime not a, a godly option to make changes, but our first option should be asking God to discipline our souls, to say no to our passions, to learn what he has for us. Listen, it's not popular. It is a harder road. You know, unless we paint a picture in our families for how to endure in a marriage, a church, and a job with friends, we will fall into the cultural mindset, you know, of just finding a different option. You know, there's got to be an app for that, right? Yeah. Spiritual maturity comes when I see the disappointment as a teacher and I lean into it. And I learn to better control my passions. You know, Janet irritates me at times. Okay? She does things, she said, says things that I don't like. And I have to add, I do the same multiple times more than she does to me. <laughs> I've learned that my irritations and disappointments are more times than not the result of my own expectations or desires I have for respect, for fun, for excitement, or a host of other things. Or maybe just to be left alone. It's not that she doesn't sin or she doesn't have her own issues, but much of my issues with her are a result of my inner struggles. They may be issues from a childhood or some wrong conception I have of marriage or just my fleshly arrogance. The point is, I can be found blaming her when she is not the problem. It takes discipline of solitude, discipline of silence. And if you haven't read Spiritual Disciplines by Richard Foster, I'd encourage you to do, do that. But it takes these disciplines before God for the Holy Spirit to reveal to me these things. And what I've learned, I can speak for me, can't speak for everybody else, but the more I have my head in a phone, the more I go from one idol to another, the more I run from one relationship to another, the less I'm seeing my own self when I'm out there blaming, trying to fix it with all these other things and not really allowing the Holy Spirit to check my own heart, my own thinking. I'll admit the world is a lot different than what it was 20 or 30 years ago when Janet and I raised our children. But I'm telling you, the principles are the same. When we learn to live with disappointment and things that don't always follow our proclivities, I think it's the more Christ-like we get with our jobs, our marriages, and as a child of God. It's just a part 
of life and I can't always fix it. So I, I live in this tension and I realize this is not the way the world should be and I'm not in my homeland. So there's going to be tension. Verse 25. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Festus acknowledges Rome is Paul's destination and he's at a loss for how to deal with him. But he's not at a loss for what is just. But he has it a, is, is at a loss for how to keep the Jews happy and submit to justice. He knows what he should do, but he's unwilling to do it. Agrippa would hopefully help to form the charges. And I want you to notice the desire to please the Jews kept Festus from doing what was right. I think we all have people in our lives who we are trying to please and they are, it's like they're hounding us. They're speaking to us. And you know what's funny? Even dead people. My dad died in 1993, and I still hear my mother making decisions based on what my dad would have expected, and it's not always healthy. Isn't that amazing? And I got a feeling we all have an image of maybe an important person in our life that does the same. Now, we would hope that maybe those were good models that would help to lead us, but sometimes it's not, and we, and we have this insecurity of, oh man, I hope I'm not disappointing this person, and it dogs us, and it, it's like it becomes an idol. We can't please those people and please God at the same time when God is telling us to do something different, right? It happens all the time when parents try to please their children, Spouses try to please their spouse. Adult children try to please their parents. Employees try to please their boss. It's not the notion of pleasing these entities that's wrong, but it's when there's a conflict that God clearly is telling us to do something than what these other entities are telling us. And they've become an idol to us. And I'd suggest that the biggest perpetrator of the thing we're listening to is our own passions our own desires that aren't always in union with God's will. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage, wage war against your soul. Notice our soul does not need the satisfaction of our flesh. It needs the sweet comfort of the Holy Spirit and feeds our spirit, the honeycomb of his word. As we commune with him, our souls will find joy and peace. This is countercultural. This can many times even be counter-evangelical. Christ alone, who has given us these graces, will satisfy. May we learn 
not to gaze anywhere else. Father, would you work in the hearts of these my friends today, cause them to see your gaze, to say no to their idols and no to their passions. And I pray that you would cause those who don't know you to commit their lives to you and ask for your forgiveness. May they write us and let us know that they can receive new life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.